0: Morning guys, why don't we all open our Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 5, we've been in a series going through the book of Acts, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we are chapter 5 now. So a quick little backstory, and then uh, tell you a little bit about what we're going to be looking at for the next couple weeks, because this will be a sort of a two-part series, if you guys don't have Bibles, raise your hand, you guys, most of you know the drill, uh, raise your hand, if you need a Bible, we'll get you one. Um... Before we jump in, let me let me I'm gonna pray first and then I'll give you a little bit of the backstory as to what's been happening up until this point and kind of tell you a little bit about where we're gonna be going over the next couple of weeks, taking a look at this passage. So let me pray and then we'll jump in. So God, we ask you right now that you would open our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, our imagination to be able to, um, to know who you are, to know what you're doing, to know what you're up to even right now. God, the way that we can know what you're doing right now is by Uh, looking into the past and reading the story, realizing what you started, what you're continuing, what you're doing right now. And God, we know that everything that you're doing is always good. It leads to life. It undoes death, uh, resets uh, broken lives. And we want to be part of that. And God, so as, as people that are broken ourselves, that have contributed to the brokenness in other people, God, we recognize we need help, we need a savior, we need not only our sins forgiven, we also need our lives redirected and reoriented around you. So God, we ask you right now that you would open our eyes, help us to see a bigger picture and understanding who Jesus is. God, let us be transformed by it. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, so what we've been looking at is the story of the early church Um, And it's not just a community of people, it's not just the way that maybe you would have understood church. This is a community of people that have been radically transformed, radically changed by an encounter with Jesus. Their lives are different. They're not the same people that they once were. I mean, you can look at the story to some degree throughout the book of uh, what we would call the Gospels, and you see these uh, same 12 guys, called them apostles, have this radical transformation. And in the book of Acts, we see this community of people going forth, doing things that they'd never really done before, with a boldness that they'd never had before, that's because Jesus has transformed their lives. And so now as they move forward, we see a brand new power, a brand new transformation going forth from these guys. And so what you see throughout the book of Acts is sort of this chronicle, this narrative, uh, sketching out, outlining sort of the, uh, the history, the story of this early church. Uh, we can kind of think of it as this narrative outlining for us what the church is doing, what the church is up to, um, what a church that is empowered by God's Holy Spirit actually looks like. So those are the things that we'll be taking a look at. So what I want to really focus on this morning really is one particular verse, and I, and I want to do this because... Uh, I feel every once in a while throughout the book of Acts because it is sort of a long narrative and there are moments where there's just this long storyline. My fear is that as just simply reading, we might get lost in the long storyline and kind of not really focus on the the big picture of what's really happening here. So what I want to do is I want to kind of pause, slow down a little bit. I know Pastor James last week taught a little bit uh, about the end of chapter 4 and beginning part of chapter 5. Um, so I want to really take a look at the end of chapter 4 all the way throughout the entire chapter 5, which is a really long passage, um, and just kind of look at some key elements throughout the story there, the narrative art, if you would. So the main thing I really want to focus on is actually found in Acts chapter 4, verse 33. There's this uh, sort of summary statement. So uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a sense, what I want to do is I want to just pause and sort of breathe the story in and kind of look at the overall narrative arc of what's been happening up to this point, what's taking place, and kind of look at some summary ideas of what's happening within the passage here. And I think the summary of what's been taking place, as well as what's going to continue to take place, is in Acts chapter 4, verse 33. I'll just read it to you. It says this, and great grace was upon them all. Um, I'll I'll read the whole verse, just so you can kind of get a little bit of the flavor of it. Uh, at the beginning part of verse 33, says, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And then it says, And great grace was upon them all. So um, the, the book of Acts is kind of interesting because that word great, it's the English word mega, right? Um, mega grace, mega power. Um, you see mega persecution. You see all sorts of great things happening to this early community of people. It's kind of an interesting study in and of itself. But what we see here is that this is a church that's defined by, if you would, by great grace. Um, grace meaning God's gift, God's favor, um, God's, God's pleasure, if you would, is bestowed. God looks at the church. In other words, if you think of it this way, when I think of a parent looking at a child and having great pleasure over their child, it's a parent just kind of watching their child playing, just kind of breathe in. It's like, ah, oh, I so love my, my, my child. And I think the same idea with regard to the church. Great grace was upon the church. Mega favor from God was upon this community of people. Um, And and the question that I really want to trace and look at um, throughout chapter 4 and chapter 5, again, kind of summarizing some of the themes, is really what does it look like to be a community of people, or at least for the early church, what did it look like for them to be this community of people that had great grace, great favor, they had great pleasure, ...of God was upon them, and what were they doing? Like, what, what were some of the snapshots of uh, what defined them? What was sort of, if you would, the DNA of how they lived their daily life? And I think every once in a while throughout the book of Acts, we're going to do this... ...because I think it's important to just kind of pause and think about and meditate... ...and concentrate on what's happening here in the early church. Because I think the main idea is when we read the book of Acts... ...is we always want to be asking ourselves a question is, okay, here's what we see great grace looks like in this book. book of Acts is sort of the story of the early church. question is, then, extending from that, is, does that define my life? Does that define my community? Does that define my experience as a Christian? I think it's always an important question to ask because um, the further away we get from something that originated, uh, it, it oftentimes can lead to sort of an inauthentic expression. I think most of us would all agree... That if we're going to be part of this thing called Christianity, we want to be part of one that is as authentic as it can be, correct? I mean, none of us would like knowingly be like, I want to be part of something that's not authentic. I want to be part of something that is completely fabricated and made up and going nowhere. None of us at all willingly, intentionally would want to be a part of something like that. But the default nature of our heart is to actually move away from that which is genuine. That's just the default nature of our heart. We are by nature we have this bent towards inauthenticity. We have this bent towards uh, hiding our shame and our guilt and covering up uh, the things that we oftentimes don't like about ourselves. We have this tendency or propensity to bend towards things that lead towards brokenness. And 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 unless there is a constant, ongoing recorrection or autocorrection happening within our lives by way of the Holy Spirit then we will at some point in our lives just veer off. We will drift. We are all prone towards drift. All of us. So the, the important thing is as a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know that there are regular occasions throughout your life you have to periodically pause and recalibrate your life. You have to regularly let God contradict you. Not that God is contradictory, but God should be saying things in our lives that are actually contradictory to the way that we're living. And that contradiction from the Holy Spirit towards us should always cause us to have this response that says, failed again, Jesus, help me by your grace, strengthen me, direct me. And what we see is this ongoing corrective. The great uh, reformer described it, the whole of the Christian life, uh, Martin Luther described it as repentance. It's one of regularly auto-correction, regularly going back and letting God recalibrate, reorient our hearts to himself And this process, we just simply call repentance. It's it's a regular, ongoing process in our life. If your life as a Christian is is regular, if you can say that the regular rhythm of your life is one in which you rarely or seldomly ever repent or recognize, uh, then there's a very good possibility you have completely drifted. So you can just pause for a moment and consider that. Say la. That reality, like if you are not regularly pausing and saying, God, help me, I I failed again, Uh, recalibrate my life, reorient myself towards you, there's a really good possibility you've really drifted far. So we want to take occasions throughout the book of Acts and just pause, look at what the early church was like, and uh, kind of breathe it in, absorb it, think about it, consider it, compare ourselves to it, and then... uh, Ask God for grace and favor to continue to keep moving on with this authentic expression of Jesus in 2016 um, on the Central Coast and beyond. We, we want to be an authentic expression of the life of God here, right now. And we believe that by God's power, we totally can be that. All right? It's not like God's hanging a carrot in front of us and saying, if you try hard enough, it will happen. God's saying, no, my spirit is with you. You are my people, and I will give you everything that you need right now to be the life of God on the Central Coast. To be everything that you need to help others to come find eternal life through me right now. But again, it does involve us periodically looking at our lives, repenting from things that maybe have slipped in that are not... Uh, part of the the authentic Christian experience and turning back to God and then finding grace to keep moving forward. So that's what I want to do. So what I'll do is I'll just kind of give you some kind of framework of what I want to look at over the next couple weeks. We're not going to get through all these today, but I just want to give you a little bit of a perspective uh, of what we'll be taking a look at. And so the question, again, that we're really trying to wrestle with is what does great grace or mega grace look like in the early church? And obviously, by implication, what should it look like in our lives? So I'll just give you uh, the five things that we'll be taking a look at. One, I think it looks like radical generosity. Two, uh, we'll take a look at, and again, first uh, two, radical generosity and holiness, are sort of a summary of what Pastor James looked at a little bit last week, a uh, summary of chapter four, beginning of chapter five. And then verse, uh, the third one will be kind of moving on from about verse 12 on into the rest of chapter five. Uh, the third thing that we see is it looks like honor, influence, or favor among the people. Fourthly, we see that it looks like broken and marginalized people being welcomed and made whole. So you see the church is sort of this community where all these broken, messed up, ruined, marginalized, uh, alienated people are literally gathering. It's, it's, it's shocking to consider because the question could easily be asked, well, where were they before that? Well, they certainly weren't at the temple. I mean, they certainly weren't being cared for by the religious elite of the day. So, so where were they? They were lost was the answer. Um, so the church begins, the Holy Spirit breathes life upon these broken uh, people that were originally from Galilee, and they become sort of this, this magnet of broken, marginalized, separated people, and they're coming to them, they're gathering to them, and they're finding wholeness in Jesus. They're, they're finding wholeness by being welcomed into this family that we would call the church, and then fifthly, we'll take a look at uh, what, it looks like, what it looks like to be guided by providence. And um, this is kind of borrowing an old uh, Puritan word or idea to describe God, but the idea of providence, and I'll unpack that more for you guys next week. Um, but the idea that God's at work, God's doing something in, in ways in which oftentimes are inexplicable, but God is behind the scenes uh, organizing and working on behalf of God's, God's people. And that's what we see really in the remainder of Acts chapter 5. And again, we'll look at that more next week. But what I want to look at here, I'll see how far we can get uh, through some of these. But First of all, let's jump in and take a look at radical generosity. Because I think it's almost impossible to read um, so far in the book of Acts without uh, realizing the fact that this was a group of people that were radically generous. The way that they saw themselves amongst uh, other people amidst the larger crowds is they, they were radically generous. And this no doubt caught the attention of people because, for one, it was, it was mentioned in the book of Acts. For two, there were people that were like flocking to this community. So um, the reason why we think that this would have stood out is because radical generosity always stands out within a community of radical stinginess, right? It's, it's just the way it is. Like, and, and that is the default mode of our heart is radical stinginess, radical covetousness. That's just who we are. It's kind of sort of what the American dream promises us, is that if you work hard, you can have everything you want, and that will contribute to your security, uh, your status, your life. Everything that you have can be obtained if you work hard enough, but once you get it, once you obtain it, make sure you hold on to it as tightly as you can, and definitely don't give it away to people that don't work hard. That's for the most part the narrative of the culture which we live in and by the way that is a narrative of death because it's not the narrative of God it's the exact opposite of what God teaches us and so what we see in the early church was this radical generosity that defined them so take a look at Acts chapter 4 verses 34 to 35 uh, just gives us a little bit of a snapshot in this. And again, if you guys were here last week, you probably had already had read this. But again, some of this might be a little bit of review. And I think Pastor James' message, I didn't get a chance to listen to it. I saw his notes, but he kind of focused more on the idea, I think, of unity and how there is this oneness of the early church. But um, at the end of the day, this idea of them having the sense of radical generosity in verse 34 and 35 says this. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them, and they brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. And they were told uh, this little cameo, this story of a guy by the name of uh, uh, Barnabas, who sells some property and gives it to the church and so on. But the point that I think is being displayed here is that There is this radical generosity. I mean, can you imagine being a part of a community where here you have, and again, buying a house um, for us is is obviously the biggest investment you will ever make, all right? For some of us, it's completely unobtainable, all right? Um, But if you are part of that, uh, the the, the community of people that are able to buy a house, that will no doubt be the biggest, largest, greatest uh, investment you will ever make. But compare that 2,000 years ago, that if you owned property, that property, for the most part, probably was not purchased by you. Uh, you inherited it, meaning it came from your dad, your parents' side, uh, your mom or dad, uh, which then came from their parents, uh, great-grandparents. In other words, this property was an inheritance that was basically handed down from generation to generation to generation. And here you are, sort of the, the, the possessor of this thing. So, in other words, to compare the idea of just simply owning a house here in San Luis Obispo, say, for example, compared to owning a piece of property in the first century that would have been in the family for generations and generations and generations. Um, So, you get the idea that the value, the market value of this was absolutely uh, beyond imagination. So, here's this guy, Barnabas, who's just like, hey, you guys have need? All right, I got this massive piece of property. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to use the money here to go to, to be distributed to you people. I just want you to pause for a second and think about that. Think about what are some of the most uh, expensive things that you have, the most costly things that you have, the most valuable things that you have. Would you be willing to just quickly part from it? Especially if it, there was some sort of need that was within the church community at large. This is where some of you are like kind of, the cynicism is kicking in. Or like, is this going to be a plea for money? no. But the point is, I just want you to think about this. Again, as we go through the Bible, there's occasions where we look at passages like this where we just have to let it speak to us. And again, I realize that sometimes talking about the things of value and money and valuable stuff, worth and whatnot, oftentimes has a tendency to rub us the wrong way. And by and large, for the most part, I think, because what's happened within the American church, at least, for sure, um, is that there's been a lot of abuse of this type of stuff, where you have a pastor up there talking about money and trying to encourage people, like, be generous, guys. And in reality, he's, like, stuffing the money in his pockets and buying $65 million jets. And he's doing all of this stuff sort of kind of with an angle. His, his impetus is not really to stimulate radical generosity. It's literally to pad his own sense of security and worth and value. It's not all what's going on here. Uh, I'm just simply trying to let the text speak for itself and for us to have to somehow wrestle with it and think about it. But I just want you to consider that and think about that. This was a community of people that was radically marked by generosity, that they were actually there were people within that community that were actually selling their goods, no matter how valuable it was, no matter how long it had been in the family line, no matter how much sentimental value was actually affixed to it or attached to it, they were quickly, willingly giving it back to this community because they were committed to something, which we'll look at in a moment here. They're committed to something. And whatever the something was radically reshaped, reoriented their hearts around it. That, that's, that's what authentic, genuine Christianity we, we see arising in the first century was. Now, that being said, some of us, if you're kind of like, wow, that's, that's pretty radical. Like, how can we do that? And, and it's important to know, I think, in the next beginning of the uh, uh, chapter 5, as the story continues, we're told that there were some people that actually sold property as well. Um, they had lied about it. And, again, it's a, another long story, which I won't go into right now. Um, they ended up lying about it, and they both died um, within a story. Um, and, basically, Peter tells them, he says, you guys didn't have to give this money. You didn't have to give all this. But the problem with these guys was it seemed as if they, they made it look like they were actually giving more than what they actually gave. So, so the real issue was not that you have to give everything. You have to take all the possessions that you've accumulated and somehow throw it into this, this pot, sort of like uh, Christian socialism or something like that. It's not at all what it was. It was not compulsive, and it wasn't that people were forced by being compelled to give. It, that people, was, they were wanting to give. Something had grabbed a hold of their heart that was so powerful, so reorienting in their lives, that they just wanted to give. They wanted to give everything they had to this thing that was being birthed upon the planet, called the church. They were so committed to it. And this is an amazing reality. And it's, again, I can't think of any other way to describe it other than just radical generosity, so, there's three things I think about that these people had possessed in terms of an attitude. So, we'll take, take a look at a couple things. One, we'll just take a look at the attitudes that they possessed. Um, we don't have to guess what type of attitudes they had um, because the scripture actually tells us what type of people they were, what types of um, emotions, if you would. Kind of what was the emotional status of these people? Were they all psycho? Right? Were they all just a bunch of people that lost their collective mind? And the answer is no, actually not. They weren't crazy. They didn't lose their mind. They weren't drinking, you know, Kool-Aid. They weren't all hallucinating together. In fact, it tells us really clearly. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, that with gladness and generosity of heart, and we're also told that throughout the rest of the book, that they just had this overwhelming sense of gratitude. So think about it. These were three attitudes that defined the early church. Gladness. They were, I mean, you, you can be glad and full of happiness and be not together emotionally or mentally. But, but we know that that's not the way that these people were because they were willingly, willfully generous as well as they had this overwhelming sense of gratitude. They were filled with thankfulness. And that we just see that these, these three things were basically always working together within this collective community of people. Now again, it doesn't mean that every single person within that community shared this exact same emotion because we're told that some of them didn't. But I think it's safe to say that the overwhelming majority of people were. They were moved by something. Something radically gripped their being at the very core of who they were, and it transformed them into people that were glad. doesn't mean that they were always happy or chipper. We've said this before. It's not that they walked around with sort of a fake smile on their face. It's that somehow they knew that in the midst of hardship and trial, which they were absolutely steeped in, Because we're told, again, the story of chapter 5 and even prior to that, we're told that they were getting arrested, they were being whipped and scourged and threatened. And some might think, well, maybe they were empty threats or absolutely not empty threats because the very people that were like shouting these threats just two months prior had actually killed Jesus in a bloody, brutal, terroristic type of a style. So these guys are not playing games. So the point that I would make is that somehow these guys in the midst of insanity... In the midst of terror attacks, all right, in the midst of their own 9/11, we're glad. <laughs> Think about that. Like that's amazing. I mean, if anything, like some of us might look at that and be like, I don't know how that's possible. But if, but even if that's even if that's you, you're looking at it like I just don't get it. There is some level in your heart that says I don't get it, but I, I wish I did. Right. I wish I did. I wish I would get that. I wish I had that. I wish somehow in the midst of my own personal 9-11, that somehow I could have some level of gladness in the midst of that. But these people had gladness. They were also told that they had this sense of generosity, which you just look at. And thirdly, we see just all throughout the, the book that they were filled with gratitude. That somehow they just recognized the, the greatness of God. That even though Christ came, God in the flesh, he died... It's torturous, brutal death, uh, he was risen again. And so they, they had their hope anchored in something that God was doing called the resurrection and ultimately ascension, that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God, interceding, uh, working, moving. His kingdom is breaking in upon this world that is breaking apart. That God's putting lives back together again that are prone towards coming and done. This is what God's up to. And and somehow these people recognize we are part of this. We're part of this. God is breaking in and somehow has already broken in on us. And we're being put back together again. Our lives are being given hope and being uh, breathed into by the Holy Spirit of God. Life is coming upon us even though our life is surrounded by oppression and brokenness and terrorizing attacks against us and threats against us, somehow we have confidence that God will make it all right. So that, that mentality leads to, I think, their sense of, of gladness, which trickle down to generosity and gratitude. So we see, first of all, those are the attitudes, I think, that they all possess. Second thing that we see... Um, I think really I would describe it this way as the currency that they used. Like, what was the currency that they were generous with? And and here's three things I think about throughout the entire book of Acts, but also kind of extending not only from the book of Acts, but on throughout really the rest of the uh, New Testament, are three ways in which they were radically generous. One, words. And... The way that a person can be generous with their words, we would have another word for that. We would call that encouragement. So a person who is encouraging, if you've ever hung around people that are like, you walk away, you're like, oh, my gosh, they're so encouraging. The reason why I think you would define them as being encouraging, because there is a generosity with their words, right? They have this ability to say things to you that's like, wow, they're like putting literary currency, if you would, encouragement into my soul and it's building me up. I I think that's generosity with words. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says this, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing and respect those who labor among you and over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly because of their work. And I think the idea here is he's saying that, look, use your words in a way that Encourage people. Build up one another. Be generous, in other words, with your words. Think about it this way. A a, a phrase that just kept coming to mind as I was considering this and thinking about this and praying through this was this idea of cultivating a culture of honor. Like, what would it look like for us as a community to actually cultivate, and it's kind of a lot of cultivating words, but cultivating a culture of honor whereby we, with our words, honor one another? I mean, what would it look like for that to happen? You know, it's, it's, it's funny to me, guys. I was, I was talking with someone um, recently, and they were describing to me how discouraged they felt. And it struck me, like, is there a connection between their feeling of discouragement and the lack of input of words going into their soul? And I'm like, that, that's exactly the, the disconnect. They feel discouraged because there is some sort of a drought of encouraging words feeding their soul, all right? Now, on the other hand, um, you can have a culture where everybody's just speaking nice things about each other and platitudes and it's fake and weird and creepy and all that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about using words in a generous tone, in a generous way that is with the main aim of building others up. Encouraging other people. And that's exactly what I think Paul is describing here. Now, in the context here, he's no doubt speaking in the context of the church, the, the community of Jesus' people. But he's also extending it on to those that are, are leading within the church. And again, this is where some might be like, well, here's the pastor trying to leverage encouragement for himself. I, I, that's okay. I don't, I don't need that. Um, I'm, you know, you've ever heard of the five love languages? One of my love languages is not necessarily like, um, I mean, I, I do like to be, Affirmed, of course, sometimes. We all do that. But the point of the matter, I'm not trying to leverage that. So here's my point. What I am saying, though, is that what would it look like if we were a community of people that use our words in a way that would encourage people? So in other words, if you see people helping out or serving within the church, in the context, to actually go up to them and say thank you, to actually go up to them and say, hey, you know what, you, you watch my kids every Sunday. I don't think I've ever really just said thank you. And I, I, I apologize about that. And I just want to say thank you, you watch my kids. Or I think of some of the people that are within the community here, like uh, business owners. I think of even um, Matt, who owns uh, St. Louis Barbecue. I mean, think about the way in which he's being generous with his goods, which, again, I think it would go into his actions. Um, He's like, he's living that out. His actions are ones which are insanely generous. But the point that I would make, imagine going up to people that are brothers and sisters in Christ with your words, acknowledging what they're doing and just saying, thank you. What you do blesses me. What you do encourages me. What you do helps me to focus on Jesus or helps me to grow my walk with Jesus or makes me feel uh, the sense of God's love and affirmation in my life. Thank you. Thank you for that. Imagine what would it look like. What type of a community would we become? How attractive to this world that is literally uh, steeped in put downs and accusations and criticism. What would it look like for us to be a community filled with people that are constantly Affirming and encouraging and loving and speaking words of blessing and affirmation to one another. That's what I think Paul's saying here. He's, he's basically saying, look, undo the criticism. Undo the natural propensity to put down other people. And in its place, use words as your currency of, of blessing. Cultivate this... Culture of honor by each other. Each of you guys honor one another with your words and say things that lift other people up. The second thing I think about are actions in Second Corinthians eight nine. It's kind of that uh, famous passage where he describes uh, Christ coming into this world. So there's this action, but what's what's underlying this passage, which I'll read in just a moment here, is is Paul is actually going around on his missionary journey. He knows that the church in Jerusalem uh, has gone through some great suffering, and so. Paul's one of the early church leaders. He's uh, off in Europe sharing the gospel, but also not only sharing the gospel, he's also taking up an offering um, to bring back uh, money and resources to the church that's there in Jerusalem that's been going through a lot of great suffering. So I see Paul using what he has been given to leverage forth blessings from other people um, so that he then can return and bring these gifts. In other words, Paul's actions are ones which actually lead to the blessing, encouragement, and life of other people. It's just radical generosity. Again, not to keep going back to this, but I love the fact that there are business owners. Again, this does not have to simply be taking place within the context of ministry. It can happen even within a broader context of just business and entrepreneurialship and life and career uh, as well. That we, by our actions, can demonstrate radical generosity. And so, again, I go back to think of some of these business owners uh, that have opened up their businesses and just said, we want to use what we have to be able to give back to other people. By our actions, we want our actions to just go forth and demonstrate radical generosity. So uh, we see that even within our church. Like, for example, we have that like, little sly that has a uh, child on there, and we're trying to get kids to, or people to help out and uh, watch the kids on Sunday morning. But, you know, the the church is far more, and we've got far more needs than just simply childcare and whatnot. That's an important one. We've got lots of stuff that goes on here as a church. What would it look like for us as a church community that when needs get brought up or arise or get uh, communicated or brought forth, for us to be a community of people that quickly responds to that, you know what I'm saying? So in other words, for example, I mean, I, I was just talking with someone this past week, and we were just talking about how... You know, one of the things that we have need of are some people to help clean the bathrooms and clean the hallways in this uh, church uh, building that throughout the week, and you know, we have hundreds of people that go through here, which means that things get dirty and get used and toilets get used and toilet paper needs to be replaced and all these other grimy things that need to be taken care of and replaced. So that means that somebody has got to do that. And So the point is, is that that means that because we have a church that oftentimes is a launching pad, people come here, they live here for a few years and they leave, that there's always this constant Turning over. That people are here maybe for a few seasons, a couple of years. They serve hard, diligently, and they uh, make their, uh, their, their, their lives sort of filled with this radical generosity. But then, then they move on. And on one hand, we, we get kind of soaked about that because we also realize that uh, we, we kind of joke about this. That we are a church that prepares people to serve in, in other churches. And it's like that, that's what we do all the time. And it's kind of funny. Like we invest a lot of time and energy and money in terms of training people and we help them and come alongside them and disciple them and coach them and then after three, four, five years they move and they go get involved in another church, which uh, there was a time that was just like, oh my gosh, why? And then on the other hand, now I'm just like, that's awesome, like how cool is that? We get to train people to go serve in churches in, you know, San Francisco or Orange County or LA or wherever it is that they're going to go serve, that's awesome, To think that we have this really unique opportunity to raise up, to train up, disciple missionaries that understand, that learn, have a heart, a life of radical generosity and are able to then go use that someplace else. But that means that there are always holes constantly being made within our church community here. So what would it look like for us to be as a church community that when needs get brought up, that rather than just simply hearing them and being like, well, I'm sure someone else will take care of it. But instead, we're just like, that's me. I'm there. They need help, I'm going to go do it. That's the idea that I see here, is that these actions, and Paul was uh, really kind of cultivating this within the early church, not just simply by speaking about it, but also by doing it, but by demonstrating with his own life. Paul was out not only as a missionary, but also doubling as one that was a fundraiser. He's raising up resources and money uh, by way of his actions to then take back to the church in Jerusalem so that they can then be blessed. And finally, we see that money, I think, is also one of the forms of currency in which they use. Money is a big deal. And it's one of the very things, again, within our culture we love to not talk about. Because I think the reality is that we oftentimes look at money as sort of this this means to obtain security and or success. That if we have it, we feel secure. If we don't, I mean, one of the best ways to know that if money has become this for you, the question is, what happens when you don't have it? What happens when you have the threat of losing it? Do you get nervous? Do you freak out? Do you feel insecure? That's a pretty good sign, pretty good indicator that money may have a stranglehold upon your life as a means of security. What about as a means of leveraging it for success? If you have more money, then you feel I can be more successful, I can buy more stuff, I can flaunt what I have. People will think I'm somebody if they see the type of car I drive or the type of stereo system I have or the type of computer I use or the type of phone that I'm constantly on looking down. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that money oftentimes becomes this means to that. So the point is, is that Jesus set these people free from that. I mean, that's the big idea, that these early Christians, they were not slaves to that, because they lived in a radically unstable environment. And in the midst of that radically unstable environment, they were radically generous with their words, with their actions, and with their money. They are literally selling, giving away, uh, auctioning off, however they did it. Their possessions, their inheritances to go towards this new community that God's forming because they recognize there are people that are in need and they were radically doing this, not out of compulsion, not out of guilt, not out of being shamed into it, but out of the fact that their hearts were open to the greatness of God. So this is an amazing reality of what we see taking place here. Uh, The next thing I notice is, really, what's the focus of the generosity? Like, what what are they aiming at in terms of uh, demonstrating the radical generosity? I think one is others. I mean, I think primarily, I think that goes without saying, is the idea of the neighbor, meaning uh, people that are unlike them. That's kind of the idea, I think, that Jesus lays out for neighbor. When he says, love your neighbor, he's not just simply saying, love the person that has the street address that's right next to you. He's saying, love the person that is the other in your life. That's not like you. It doesn't look like you. It doesn't dress like you. doesn't have the same color of skin as you. It doesn't have necessarily the same cultural habits as you, nor even like the same sports as you. Maybe they're not even your fan. Maybe they don't even follow you on Instagram. They are totally altogether not interested in you. That's your neighbor. (laughs) Jesus says, Show radical generosity to them. That's the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Um, again, without going into it, the big idea in that story is that Jesus says, that look, who, who's really the neighbor to this, this guy that's been broken and beaten up and shoved off to the side of the road, left for dead? Was it the Levite? Was it the religious leader? Was it these other people that should have been demonstrating radical generosity? In his story, he actually makes uh, this Samaritan, which was actually a despised people group within the context of first century. It'd be kind of like Jesus if we were living today, telling a story. would be like, okay, the hero of my story is an, uh, is an ISIS specialist, special agent. He is the one that actually showed kindness to this person that was on the side of the road. Like, we would hear that with the same sense of, like, shock and awe, of, like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, is that possible? Is that possible? They're, they're the bad guy. And Jesus is trying to make a point. He's like, look, the idea is showing love showing kindness showing generosity to a neighbor it's a human thing it's it's being human god in the gospel is reclaiming broken humanity in christ and reestablishing retooling reconfiguring life around Jesus. And again, what we see is that Jesus is leading people to love others, their neighbors, in other words. Um, we also see that the focus of the generosity was believers. We see that within the context that they're giving their money. They recognize that if there are needs within the community. They're like, well, let's, let's figure out what we can do to kind of pull together our resources, our money, so that we can then release it back to the community. We also see that the focus of it was, was the mission of the church. This, this is all throughout the book of Acts, that people recognize the church is God's means of resetting this world back to right again. And I think this is an important thing because a lot of ways I need to address this. In our modern culture, there is a tendency, I think, to think about the church as nothing more than an institution. And in some cases, that's absolutely true. There are situations and uh, scenarios within our modern setting in which the church has become institutionalized, where you have this big thing, institution, that's kind of very reminiscent of the first century temple, where it's all about building, it's all about having this large piece of property, it's all about kind of uh, keeping a sense of uh, security and pomp and respectability within a culture and community. And in a sense, people look at that, especially millennials, younger people look at that and they're like, I don't want to give money to something like that where the uh, air conditioning bill alone is like $100,000. That's ridiculous. And I I totally agree, totally agree. But here's the point. The tendency is to somehow think that all communities of churches are alike, act alike in that same sense. In other words, all their values are exactly the same. And here's what I would say for us. I mean, I can't speak on behalf of every other church, but I can just simply say for us, as a church community, we take very seriously the mission of the gospel. And we believe that the way God wants to do that is by mobilizing people, human beings like you and I, that are redeemed by Jesus, meaning we're saved who've been uh, washed, cleansed, forgiven by Jesus, transformed, disciple to make disciples. And that costs money. It costs money to do that. It costs money to be able to uh, staff people so that they can work full-time, so they can disciple full-time, so that they can create a community or a culture of discipleship at a full-time level. This happens all the time. In this community, we call the church. This is... God's means, again, the church is not just simply an institution, though it has been institutionalized. The church at its heart, in its authentic, genuine context, the way we see in the book of Acts, was this movement, this gathering of people that were focused on proclaiming the name of Jesus. In the early church, people that comprised that movement said, we realize in order for the apostles to do what the apostles do, uh, they can't go out and work full-time as well as do what God's calling them to do. So, therefore, we will contribute what we have, resources, our time, our energy, our money, to that work because we believe it's what God's doing. It's, it's the mission. It's doing good. It's discipling people to be followers of Jesus so they can be a part of what God's doing. So my encouragement for you to think about this is in this context that the early church was this radical generous community of people that did radical things with what they'd been given. Every one of us, we've been given something different. Um, Every one of us have different abilities that God's given to us. Every one of us have things that we don't have, all right, that others might have. Some of us have more time than we have money. So think about what would that look like for you to steward the time that you have to contribute to the work that God's doing? Some of you have more money than you have time. What would that look like for you to contribute, to be part of that mission of what God's doing here? So the final thing I would say with regard to that, it's going to look differently for all of us. But the big idea that I would really pass along is the early church that was really within the realm of God's mega grace. This church that was moved, that was impacted by God's super grace was radically generous. Like, like, we can't deny that. And so the question is, uh, by way of comparison, we, at some point, we've got to look at ourselves and say, are, am I radically generous with what I have? And wh- what does radical generosity look like for me? And again, it's going to look different for all of us, because each one of us have different things that we have been given that we're called by God to steward. So it will look different for all of you. I, I, can, I can give you sort of a little bit of an anecdotal type of an uh, example. So for my wife and I, like for us, ever since we f- first moved up here, we... Left Orange County, we moved up here uh, to plant the church. And from the very beginning that we moved up here, we were always assessing, we still do this today, going on 25 years of marriage, going on almost 23 years of living up here, we still do the same thing. It's a practice and a habit that we have continually do. As we look at our lives, different seasons, different seasons we have more, different seasons we have less. Um, there have been times where we've lived in houses that are really small, so, you know, opening up our house, having people over is kind of a non-option. And there have been times where we've had big houses and lots of great stuff that we just go crazy and have people over. And right now, we're kind of in that place where God's given us this house, which at least we have it for at least another six months until we've got to find another house. But the point is, is that right now, God's given us this great spot that we've been able to rent. It's awesome. And we're like, okay, God's given us this great place. How can we use this to bring great blessing and encouragement by way of generosity, radical generosity to other people. People that don't have a home, how can we open this up and let this be their home? People that don't have a spot where they can go to have a nice meal, how can we open this up so that people who don't have a spot to go get a nice meal can come over? How can we use what we have, whether possessions, whether it be goods, whether it be places where we live, or whether it be even money, to become a source of blessing and life to the people? Which leads me to the final thing. What motivates and what motivated the early Christians to do this. And this is really probably one of the most important things, because we can look at this, and there's a lot of different ways in which people have been motivated to give, right? Um, People have been motivated by intense uh, sympathy, right? Uh, Where you see this child who's crying, and you're, like, motivated by a deep sense of, of emotion, and you're like, I want to give to that, and that may or may not work, But then sometimes you all find out that that little kid never existed, and, you know, that's, there's a disconnect between the, what's being displayed and what's, what's actually really happening, but the point of the matter is, is sympathy is a deeply motivating type of a thing. Guilt also works really well, too. I'm serious. Guilt absolutely works. I can fully guilt you guys into giving, make you feel really bad and lousy and horrible, and some of you would be like, I'm going to give, but the problem with guilt is guilt is short-lived. In other words, it does not lead to sustainability. It doesn't carry. Guilt can literally conform you or, 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 or oppress you, but it can never really truly transform you. And what the gospel does is it transforms us. It doesn't just force us to give. It transforms us to become givers. And how does it do that? How did it do that with these guys? I, I think the way it did it with these guys can be summarized in 2 Corinthians 8 9, which Paul later would write. and He says this, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. And this is sort of the summary idea. This is the passage that Paul basically uses to motivate them. I mean, Paul literally could have been like, look, I'm an apostle. I'm commanding you guys to give because that's the right thing to do. But Paul doesn't. Paul taps into this Big source of what we call good news, gospel. And he says, look, the reason why we want to be a community of givers, of radical generosity, is because God himself is a community of radical generosity. God comes into this world, and he literally takes upon himself flesh and bones. He literally absorbs in his own flesh the sickness, the sin, the death, the horror, the trauma, the tragedy, the terror of this world upon himself. He absorbs it so that through his poverty, we who live in a perennial state of poverty, even though we may be tempted to believe that we are super rich, in some cases there can be a big argument that would make that Americans are by definition far more richer than any other part in this world, but in the large, total, generalized sense, all of us are impoverished for God. But he says, by his own generosity, becoming poor, who was once rich, takes us who are truly poor, broken, and ruined, and oppressed, and crushed, by the weight of our own sin, so we can be given life. We can be given wealth. We can be given riches, his riches. And when we think about that. That's how that worked. So... If, for example, I were to come over to you and wash your feet, which I won't, there's a process of exchanges happening. Um, Me washing your feet, taking the stench off of your feet, taking the grime off of your feet, there's a transference going on. That grime and stench would be transferred to me. I would be absorbing grime and stench, and in exchange, you would be getting cleanliness. Hopefully, you'd be getting clean. The same is true with money. So, for example, if you've got a hundred bucks and you know somebody that needs a hundred bucks, for you to give that person who's in desperate, dire need of a hundred bucks, for you to give them a hundred bucks, they're a hundred bucks richer, you're a hundred bucks poorer. You can follow? There's always a sacrifice that goes on. What sacrifice did God take upon himself, incur upon himself, in order to give us his riches? And that's, that's the story that Paul attaches us to. That's the story that we're told in the book of Acts that radically transformed this community of people that no doubt were just like us, radically stingy, radically comfort seekers into radical, generous people that were literally bringing everything they had, saying, God is great. We love God's people. We love the mission that God is doing. We want to be part of this. God has transformed our hearts. We want to use the time, the money, the energy, the resources that we have to lift the burden and brokenness and pain and struggle and hardship off of other people. And we will incur it upon ourselves because that is exactly what God in Christ did for me. Motivated by love. So it changes us. The gospel truly changes us, transforms us, just like it transformed them. Those are the type of people we want to be. So I'm going to finish We'll respond by singing, we'll respond by confessing sin, we'll respond by partaking of communion. And as we partake of communion, it's a way of reminding us that Jesus' body was broken, his blood was shed, so that we who are broken, we who have our life shed every single day through life, through life beating us up and trashing us, we can have life. That was the cost that God occurred upon himself. So why don't we all stand let me pray, we him, we'll come on forward, and we'll sing, we'll respond to God, and worship him. Let me pray. God, thank you for who you are, for what you've done. God, we just recognize that the idea of generosity is something that we truly as, I think, just westernized Americans, we struggle with. And, God, I think it would be safe to say that really a lot of us, at the end of the day, uh, money is is our idol. It's what we trust in. It's what we look to for security, for safety, for self-worth. And, God, for some of us, we're trapped right there. That's where we're stuck. We are are a slave to these things. And, God, what, what we need more than anything is salvation. We need Jesus to set us free. We need Jesus to lift our hearts from our worship of false gods, false hopes and to trust in Christ who forgives us, who washes us, who cleanses us from our offense before you and sets us right and reorients our hearts to become ones that are filled with love and affection for you and for the things that you love. You love You love your church. God, we want to be people that have hearts that are filled with love for your church.